Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 5. This is the last uh, week, of course, we'll be on this text. We're going to be focusing on 2021, but I want to remind you that this, it's from this text that we um, get the doctrine, uh, this is uh, primarily from this text, we get the doctrine of the federal headship of both Adam and Christ. This is, it's so explicitly laid down in this passage. And in essence, from Romans 1 through chapter 5 up to this point, Paul has talked about salvation. Now he's turning to the Savior. And he wants us to see the kind of Savior we have by virtue of the kind of Savior we have in Adam. Right? So had Adam succeeded, we'd be in heaven because of Adam. But he didn't. He failed as our federal head. Now, what is a federal head? A federal head is not just a representative. So when your representatives, I said this last week, when your representatives get a speeding ticket, you don't get that speeding ticket. When your representatives do whatever they do, it doesn't come back to us. But a federal head, what they do is our standing. Their standing is our standing. What they do is what we do. And our, um, the first federal head of mankind was Adam. And he was a miserable failure. And so what Paul does here is he shows how Jesus is the second Adam. He also is a federal head, and that's verses 18 and 19. We got to that in proper but he has these two huge digressions, 12 um, through uh, 14 and 14b through 17, where he establishes two things about Christ as our Savior. And we saw that he's an essential Savior, 12b through 14, a superior uh, Savior, 14b through 17. And then last week, we saw he's a saving Savior. Unlike Adam, who saved nobody, Christ saves. This morning now, we're going to come to this, he's topping it off, verses 20 and 21, giving us, in essence, a therefore, though he doesn't say therefore, um, but he returns back to what he already talked about in verse 12, and that's the law, his first digression. Speaking of the law, now that I told you my main point, 18 through 19, now I want to talk to you about the law, and uh, more importantly, Christ and the law. So with that, let me invite you to to stand together with me. I'm going to read verses 18 through 21 this morning, since we are uh, familiar with this text, having been on it now for many weeks. Um, 18 through 21 will be the text that we look at this morning. Please stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's Word. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that transgressions or that uh, transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That is, sin reigned in death. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being a merciful God who condescends and gives us what we do not deserve, and that is your word and your instruction. And more than that, Jesus Christ himself. Lord, bless this time. May it be more than just simply information, but... May this be a a wonderful time of fellowship with you, where you are the servant of this meal, and that, Lord, you would enable us to take it in, to feast upon it. So, Lord, grant clarity, I pray. On my part, give me grace to preach with fidelity. 
Grant us unction in in fellowshipping with you and in, in hearing your word that we might indeed hear. And that, Lord, by your spirit, it would penetrate us and transform us and renew us and encourage us unto your glory. God bless this time, we pray to your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Augustus Caesar stands as one of the greatest leaders this world, not just Rome, but this world has ever seen. He was born in 63 BC, died in 14 AD, and that 75 years of living, Rome went from being an empire, or from a republic, to an empire. What's a republic? A republic is a, is a, a, a civil um, entity ruled by many. An empire is a civil entity ruled by one. For 500 years prior to Augustus Caesar, Rome was a republic ruled by a senate which was staffed by the um, 25 leading families of Rome. Um, they, ruined, or they ruled, and, and under him, Rome went from being that republic to an empire, which means either civil war broke out or the senate freely gave up their power, and, uh, which would, of course, be rather unlikely. But yet with Augustus Caesar, the unlikely took place. There was the tumultuous years that led to Julius Caesar, known as the first uh, triumvirate, where the Senate sought to keep peace by, we know, we'll choose three generals, not two, because they'll fight three great generals who, if one seeks to take over, the other two will resist him. So they chose Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus. Well, sure enough, the moment they put him in power, they began fighting and bickering. And in the end, Julius Caesar won. And you know this, you may know this great story where after he finished the last general off, he brought his soldiers across the Rubicon, which in Rome, you're not supposed, if you're a general, your soldiers are supposed to stay outside. In essence, park your weapons outside of town. You can come in. Well, he took his soldiers in and he took over. And he ruled as a king in essence, as an emperor. Well, he was assassinated. And when he died, Rome was up, up in, in arms. So the Roman Senate, um, already see, learning perhaps their uh, lesson, nevertheless, they had no other option, they created the second triumvirate. And that second triumvirate was Augustus Caesar, Lepidus, and um, make, sure, uh, make sure you get the right one, uh, Mark Antony, obviously. And once again, they began fighting. And in the end of the war, uh, the end of the fighting, the bickering, and the, the armies of opposing armies, Augustus Caesar turned out to be the, the victor. And so he, like Julius Caesar, after he was the victor, came to Rome. However, he parked his soldiers, his army, outside of Roman uh, precinct. So he went to the Roman Senate, and you can imagine the Senate was expecting the exact same thing that Julius Caesar said, and that was, I'm taking over. But instead, Augustus Caesar came in and said, I have restored peace to Rome. It's yours, utter rule. And the Senate was so amazed by that gesture that they made him emperor. So he's known as the greatest leader, and that's one of many examples, greatest leader, not because he conquered kingdoms, not because he won battles. He's the greatest leader because of what he gave up. And what is most ironic to me is that during his regency, 64 to 14, there was a child born who would be the greatest, by far, infinite, eternally so, the greatest leader 
the greatest man this world has ever seen. And much like Augustus Caesar, what makes him so great is not what he, not the wars that he conquered necessarily of man, but what he gave. But what a contrast. Augustus Caesar secured the Pax Romana by giving up power, and it lasted until he died. Jesus Christ secured peace with God eternally, and he did that by likewise giving up something. But instead of giving up power, he gave up his life. He gave. And that's what sets Jesus Christ apart as a Savior. He gave. He supplied. He supplied his life for our greatest need. He supplies more than that. And that's where Paul gets to at the end of this section as he's now describing the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of our Savior. As we saw, once again, he's an essential Savior, a superior Savior, a saving Savior. This morning now, verses 20 and 21, he turns his focus now to a supplying Savior. Would you notice with me, first, the the context in which he supplies, and it's important context. Verse 20, and the law came in. All right, so this important context, we'll stop there, because it's describing the people represented both by Adam and Jesus. Okay, he's just spent the last however many verses, 12 through 19, describing these two Fedra heads and describing their, um, what, uh, um, because of their Fedra headship, what resulted. Now, in the context of these Fedra heads, Paul says, picking back up on his conversation in verse 12 about the law, he says, now, let me tell you something. The law came in, and now what we're talking about here, brothers and sisters, is what is known as special revelation. So general revelation is God's testimony to the world via the creation he made, Romans chapter 1. Now he turns to a special revelation that he has given us, which is his word. And in this word are laws. And he's focusing on that facet of special revelation. God gave the law specifically for a purpose. Notice verse 20b. And the law came in that, that's a hint of clause. Tells you the purpose. Anytime you read a henna clause, henna, that tells you, I'm giving you a purpose. This is why. I say this because. So in translation, you could say, I say this because. For the law came in that purpose. The transgressions might increase. Now, the text doesn't have these words shown to be, but that's the nuance here. What Paul's saying is God gave his law that he might elucidate, illumine God's people's eyes, or the people's eyes represented both by Adam and Christ, but nevertheless, rep, we're going to focus on Adam on this point, represented by, by Adam, that they might see that they're transgressors. Without that law, you can be quite the sinner and not even realize it. So we see that we pick it up in Romans 7. You know this passage very well, just a the, the, uh, page over. You can look at it or read it. What shall we say then is the law sin may never be? On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, making opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taken opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So this is referencing what is known as the first use of the law. The law has three uses, okay? The law of God. 
Okay, you got the first use, which is known as the um, uh, um, uh, pedagogical. Okay, it's, it, it leads us. It's a mirror. It shows us who we are. And so it, it, it opens our eyes to the reality of what we really are. The second use, as you may know, is the civil use, which is, um, provides order in the world in which we live, Romans 13. But then there's the evangelical use or what is known as the uh, um, normative use, and that is as it teaches us and educates us and grows us as God's pe- uh, people. I'm going to focus here, um, uh, as, as, as we naturally do when we read this, on the first use, that the law came to testify to the sons of Adam that you are condemned. We just saw last week, everyone in Adam are condemned. Now the law, God gave the law as a mercy, not to save them. Now I stress that to you right now. We all would agree with this. God didn't give his law to save man. Which means if you're saved in Christ, following the law doesn't make God happy with you more than you, right? God following the law doesn't, make you, doesn't keep you saved. God didn't give the law to save. He gave the law, in this case, so that the transgressions might be shown to increase. So that God's people, or, the, or better yet, the sons and daughters of Adam, might go, wow, I'm, I'm bad, I'm sinful. It's the same thing, brothers and sisters, you see with the signs of the, the time. Why does hurricanes occur? Why do tra- uh, you know, horrible earthquakes, why do bad things happen? They happen as a mercy of God to, a, to an unbelieving world that they might open their eyes and see, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. The law was given to open the eyes of the sons of Adam. Unto what end? Ultimate end, Galatians 3. The scriptures have shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. Okay, so that's the pedagogical use. Our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. And so, on the the surface, as we first read this, we think of, of, of one group, the sons and daughters of Adam. And we see that, brothers and sisters, that that, that, that according to God's divine plan, the law was given to illumine the sinfulness of men and so demonstrate their moral peril before God. That, was what is, that is what's behind the giving of the law. So that God's people, who are still sons of, of Adam, uh, are condemned in him, might wake up and see, my oh my, I'm not what I thought I was. I thought I was a pretty good person, but I'm not. That's, that is the purpose, okay? So that's the context. You have these two peoples, two federal heads, two people represented by those heads, and God has given his word, his law, that he might awaken us and let us behold reality. Now, to what end? Notice with me the content, therefore, of what he uh, supplies. In this context, Christ comes and gives us something. Okay, and that gives us 20C. And the law came in that transgressions might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Two words I want to focus on today, abound. The word abound, we already saw in verse 15. If you look at the end of verse 15, he talks about Jesus Christ being a superior savior. And he talks about that the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Well, that's this word. However, it has a prefix, hooper. And by adding that prefix, it intensifies it. 
So we could translate this not just abound as in verse 15, we could translate this superabound. This is where we get the idea, you heard this, you've heard it in hymns, you hear people in prayer, you hear it from pulpits. And that is where your sin is, where sin increases, um, um, or, or better yet, where you sin, God's grace is greater still, right? No matter what you do, no matter how much you sin, God's grace is greater still. And it's not just greater in, in degrees, it superabounds. Okay, that's God's grace. And that, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus Christ supplies he gives super abounding not just a little grace right hey there's a little fire here um it's about an acre wide let's get as much water as we need to put it out oh no we're going to empty we're going to empty half of the ocean on that fire that's super abounding okay so the idea is god gives a super abounding grace now let's talk about this word used 155 times in the new testament paul uses it 100 times And when he uses that word, he uses it in reference to one of five things. We've talked about this in your bulletin or in your notes. It'll be up there. One of five things. Look at this list. One, it does refer to unmerited favor. Okay? That's what we we think of in Ephesians 29. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's unmerited favor. It's that God gives us what we don't deserve and that what we don't deserve is salvation, a a clean record. He gives us that. That's grace. Now that's one-fifth of it. After that, we look at Titus 2, and it's used of Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So grace is also Jesus Christ. When you talk about, Lord, give me grace, ultimately you're saying, give me Christ. Thirdly, it's talking about Christ's teaching. The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And thus, in Scripture, we're to, um, Acts 14, 3, Acts 20, 20, uh, uh, 32, it's used in the context of teaching, right? Hold to the word of grace, the teaching of grace, um, says Paul to the Ephesian elders. Then it's a pusto, and a pusto, as you know, is a, is a, a leverage point outside of where you are. So if you want to move... A building, you got to get a leverage point outside of the building, which would typically be a lever that you put a big, huge stick on, and uh, it would it would brace it, and you could lift it up, right? Archimedes, if I have a leverage point outside the world, I'll, I'll move the world. Okay, well, grace is that leverage point in your life. If you want to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ, it's not going to be anything in you. It won't be what you do or what you say. It won't be some formulaic thing. It'll be something outside of you that, 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 that actually moves you. And that's Jesus Christ. That's God's grace. It's a pusto. And hence we're called to stand firm in grace. Stand firm on the grace in which we stand, right? And then lastly, it's divine aid. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So grace in Scripture is five things, one of which is salvific in the sense of justification, but the other four is salvific salvific in the sense of, of sanctification and glorification. Okay. Now, when we come to this passage and we read that Christ's grace superabounds, we again naturally take this in reference to justification, right? To the sons and daughters of Adam. But you've got to see, Paul's done with that comparison in verse 20. 
He's talking, well, first of all, back, he's talking about two different groups. And then he comes and sort of gives this, this uh, closing um, uh, um, idea separate from verse 19. He's picking back up in verse 12. So this is a new section. And in it, he's going to draw conclusions about the law of God and its interaction with regards to God's people and Adam's people. With Adam's people, grace superabounds and that it opens their eyes to the need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And for those whom God calls, these people, by God's grace, come to Him and are, are saved. But brothers and sisters, when we talk about this in reference to you and me, sons and daughters of Jesus, with our federal head, we apply this not just in as unmerited favor. We apply this. This is important you see this. We apply this in reference to the other four. Or the other, yeah, four. Christ himself. The teaching where, where you and I struggle in our walk with Jesus Christ. Guess what God does? Not just think of salvation, justification. Guess what God does in your life as a Christian when you are struggling, when you are living in sin, when you, are, when you have compromised, when you've fallen so far. What does God do? He gives you superabounding Christ. Superabounding teaching. He draws near to you. That's the idea here. So we can take this both ways in terms of justification or in terms of God's enabling grace by which we stand. From this perspective, it's grace in Scripture which enables the, the, the Christian to conduct themselves in holiness and godly sincerity. It's grace in Scripture which, which enables God's people to exercise the spiritual gifts they have been uh, given. Experience joy in the midst of trial. Have all their needs sufficiently met. Glorify Christ. So this is all God's people. Have help in time of need. Be strengthened and established in the midst of incredible suffering. Fulfill their call and have eternal comfort and hope. Okay, It's this that Christ supplies as our Savior enabling grace for his people when you say that uh, when 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 our sin increases brothers and sisters we must understand that god's grace superabounds even more in our lives in other words brothers and sisters when you sin christ doesn't run away christ runs toward he runs to you to pick you up to enable you to repent, to open your, your, your eyes. That's what God's enabling grace does. And that's what Jesus Christ, as our Savior, supplies. Adam supplies death. Jesus Christ supplies saving grace, sanctifying grace, glorifying grace, a grace which comes to, its, 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 uh, to the floor, to sight, when we need it. He gives us grace to help in time of need. It's when we need it that we see this super abounding grace. So brothers and sisters, that's what Christ supplies. But you know what? Sadly, as God's people, when the difficulty comes and the hardship's on, you know what we're like? We're like John Mark. I want you to think back with me at the crucifixion story. This is an account which is not really... You don't see it a lot, certainly not in Hollywood, certainly not in the movies. And that is John Mark. So do you remember in the 70s, those of you who are old enough, the 70s, there, there was this fad called streaking. Do you guys know what streaking is? Do you guys know what that is? It's where, I don't know why I was a kid, I don't know why I was a kid, but I don't know why when I was a kid, 
this fad occurred. And in fact, songs were written. It was called The Streak, if you remember that song, right? Um, the fastest uh, streak on two feet or something. It, it was a great little song I loved. Um, but streaking, where people would take their clothes off at a ballpark and run through the ball field. And so you'd be watching a, ba- a baseball game, and sure enough, there'd be this naked guy running through. You'd be at a graduation, there'd be a naked guy running through. I mean, everywhere you go, there's this naked guy running around. It's streaking. Okay, it was a fad in the uh, 70s. Well, brothers and sisters, Mark chapter 14, there was a streaker in the context of Jesus Christ's arrest and betrayal. It was John Mark, believably John Mark. Mark 14, and a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. He ran running through Jerusalem naked. So you, you, you hear that, and, it, and my immediately, every time I read that, I smile, because I think that's funny, that there's this guy running through the streets of Jerusalem like in the 70s, you know? Um, and it makes me laugh. But yet, brothers and sisters, I think it's such an, ap- an appropriate picture of how you and I handle trial and difficulty in God's grace. Trial comes. It seizes us. It's, it, it grabs us. And we're doing anything and everything we possibly can to get out of it. Difficulty comes. Hardship comes. We sin. And we're doing everything, anything possible we can to get out of it. And so it doesn't matter what we cast aside. we got to get out of there as fast as we can. And so what do we do? We, we forget grace. We forget that which clothes us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in our sin, we're doing anything and everything we can to just make it right. And what do we do then? Man, we, we revolt. We revert to what we know best. And what we know best is our performance. And so we run away and we hide. And we do everything we possibly can to try to make it equal with God. To get God to say, okay, Christian, you're not so bad. Do you know what Paul says here? He says, when you and I are at our worst, that's when God's grace superbounds. And it comes. And so rather than you and I running from God, we need to see in the midst of the trial and the difficulties of life, even caused by our own sin, when we're in those situations, we need to see, brothers and sisters, Christ is there. Such contrast. Notice Paul and what God taught this man. I want to look at this man as, as a, a case point for you, as an illustration at this point, for this point. Second Corinthians chapter 12, listen to it. We read this, you know the text well. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I treat the Lord three times that it might depart uh, from me. Circumstances descended upon Paul's life, such as weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties. Look at that list, and you're looking at a life that is tormented by difficulty. They came upon Paul's life. And you know what we do? When that happens to us, we immediately start thinking of performance, and we go, God, what have I done to deserve this? What did Paul do to deserve this? Nothing. God is being gracious to this man. Do you understand in God's grace... He doesn't give us your fleshly desires or what you want in, on this side of the grave because if he did, we would be proud. That's why the psalmist says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be fallen, deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord, or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God? God, give me what is necessary for me to love you and know you. But we don't do that. Difficulty come, and like John Mark, man, we just flee and we go, Oh, God, why? And we, we do all kinds of things. 
whether it's manipulation, whether it's mean uh, religious uh, manipulation, trying to get good with God because they're trying to figure out, God, why is my life so difficult? Why are you disciplining me? Brothers and sisters, God's disciplining Paul not because of anything he did. Because he loved them, Hebrews 12, right? In the weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties, God brought Paul to a very important point. Verse 9a. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Oh, Eureka. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Power and grace modify each other. He's talking about the power that enables Paul to stand in the midst of these difficulties. That's his grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. How is it perfected? Because in our weakness, what does Paul do? What does he do here? He cries out to God. And thus, brothers and sisters, I want you to see something very, very important. That is the end. That is the um, goal. That's the telos of the um, of of the of the the things of this life. That's the telos of the law of God in your life. That's the telos of how God's molding and shaping you. That you and I would cling to Jesus Christ, cling to grace in the flesh. Do you understand that? Why Christ is the applying Savior? That's what He gives. Do you understand what He gives? He's not giving you money, health. Wealth, that comes in the next days. On this age, as a supplying Savior, what's he supply, brothers and sisters? Confess it. What does he supply? He supplies you grace in the form of himself. That's what he gives. And his sanctification process in your life is to bring you to the point where you say, God, that's all I want. Right? I, as a younger Christian, I sought for honors, right? As the poem goes, sought for degrees, right? I, I did all these different things seeking that this would make me happy. This would make me a great Christian. This would make me this. When brothers and sisters, what is the telos of our Christian walk? Is it not God himself? Glorifying him and delighting in him. So what does Jesus Christ supply? Fits perfectly here. In the midst of the trial, when the word of God comes and opens your eyes to the reality of our sinful situation, what does he give us? Super abounding grace. He gives us himself. He supplies us with the greatest blessing he could ever give, and that's him. And that then brings us then, would you notice with me, the consequence. Brothers and sisters, when you and I dwell in this world, in this world that we're describing. When, we, when you and I are saying, you know what? All I want is Christ. In the words of, of Rutherford, you know, whether in your sickness, in your, in your illness, if the Lord draw uh, by the bedside and, and um, um, speak to you, it is well. Welcome, welcome, cross of Christ, if Christ be with it, right? That's what we're after. We're after Christ, and that's exactly what's promised here. Notice the consequence. When you and I are, 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 are seeking, dwelling, fellowshipping, desiring, feasting upon Christ in grace, when that's what we want, when that's what we get, notice the result. That, verse 21, another, um, another hint of clause, purpose clause, God gives a superabounding grace that as sin reigned in death, 
Even so, grace might reign through righteousness, might reign through the right standing we have in Jesus Christ. So as sin reigns in death, even so, grace might reign in our lives through the right standing we have in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, what occurs? Unto eternal life. Do you see a complicated verse, but it's very simple. What's he say? He, he gives a superabounding grace unto eternal life. What's eternal life? So like what we talked about last time, we saw at the very end, righteousness of life or justification of life. Verse 18, what is this? Well, brothers and sisters, eternal life is, we've defined it now a couple times here. I'm going to briefly give it to you. What is eternal life? It translates a phrase that literally means life pertaining to the age. Accordingly, eternal life does not primarily re- uh, refer to endless existence, but an existence in the age to come in which the fullness of God's kingdom has come an age which where god reigns righteousness dwells fellowship is enjoyed discord divisions gone love abounds hope is realized that's eternal life now we think of that in the future but yet when we become a christian what do we get the moment we're saved eternal life we began living the life we're going to live for the rest of eternity so eternal life is characterized as we saw last week as this abundance um life fellowshipping true life fellowshipping with God forever. That's eternal life. Um, and it's that we're to take hold of, 1 Timothy 6.12, take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. He says uh, to Timothy, grab onto it. Well, how do we do that? How do we grab onto eternal life? Experientially, how do we get this? Well, let me walk you through this verse, thinking now of the third use of the law. Okay, I'm wrapping it up here. Look with me one more time at this verse, but instead of thinking of the children of Adam represented by Adam, think of all the people represented by Jesus Christ. Think of you. Let's read it in light of that. Notice with me 720. And the law came in, the word of God came in. That transgressions might be shown to increase. You know, when you were first saved, oh, let me just say me. When I was first saved, I thought I was a pretty holy person. I've been saved from a whole lot of stuff, but boy, I'll tell you what, as a baby uh, Christian, I was God's. And I got up early, and I studied, and I did all these things. It didn't take very long for me to go, man, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty godly person. But what happens in life? Or better yet, when, I, when you're saved, God's a pretty holy God. God's a pretty gracious God. You have all these thoughts about who God is, and it's, all tr- it's wonderful. But what happens? As you look back, you go, boy, I, th- I used to think God was holy. Now I know he's holy. And in 20 years, we'll say the same thing about today. I used to think God was living. Man, I know he's living. I used to think I was, I was holy, but now, not based on my actions. In fact, I'm not. In Christ, I've been made holy. So what does the word of God do? The law comes that the transgressions might be shown to increase. What are we talking about there as Christians? What that means is as you and I go to the word of God, God opens our eyes to see we are nothing like we thought we were. Think of Paul, right? The more he grew in his walk, his holy habits increased, no doubt. But his view of himself just went tanked. He saw himself for what he is. More and more. First he was the not worthy to be called an apostle. Then he, was, then he wasn't worthy to, to be called a Christian. Now he's the chief of sinners. That's growth in your walk, brothers and sisters. As you are in God's word and as you struggle in your walk with Jesus Christ, which is by definition 
Christianity on this side of the grave, right? As you and I struggle in our walk with Jesus Christ to be the people that God calls us to, uh, to be, to trust Him in the midst of the flame, as you and I struggle there, what does God illumine us with? He illuminates, he, he opens our eyes to the reality that, man, I thought I was a sinner. I'm a billion times worse than I thought. But his grace superabounds. And all of a sudden now, the theme of my Christianity is not how bad I am, but how great God is. So notice, the law came in, the word of God comes, so that transgressions might be shown for what they are. I got a great quote there from C.S. Lewis. I'm not going to read it. You can read it on your own, um, where he talks about the difference between good men and bad men. Bad men don't know they're sinful. Good people do. The more you grow, the more you're going to see your, your sin. But this is where that knowledge leads. And then verse 20c and beyond. But where sin increased, the more I see my sin, the more I see I've fallen down, what does God do? Grace abounds all the more. So if you read this, thinking of the third use of the law, the four uses of grace outside of unmerited favor, you realize for God's people, it's the same process as the non-believer, as the one represented by Adam. God gives the law to show them that they need a Savior. In our life, God's word, as we walk with our, our Lord, and we dialogue, and we, um, what's the word, um, fellowship in God's word, what happens? God opens our eyes to see where we see our need for the grace of Jesus Christ more today than I've ever seen it before. And what's neat about this, brothers and sisters, what is the theme? What is the, therefore, the theme of Christianity if we were derived from 2021? It's the superabounding grace of God. It's not my failure. It's not the things I don't do and the things I want to do. It's Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. It's the superabounding grace of God which becomes our glory, our joy, what we cling to, what we long for, what we want. And so Paul comes, I wrap this up, he comes and, and he says, now that you know about the salvation, one through five, let me tell you about your Savior. And this ends with this glorious, triumphant um, uh, um, um, a climax, which is, brothers and sisters, whether you're the son of Adam or the son of Christ, super abounding grace is our theme. I close with the words of Christian Ludwig Scheidt. I have no idea how to pronounce the German. Um, but this is what he wrote. By grace. Okay, we all talk about by grace. We live by grace, superabounding grace. Let's talk about this for a second, says Christian Ludwig. By grace, these precious words remember when sorely by thy sins oppressed, when Satan comes to vex thy spirit, when troubled conscience sighs for rest. What reason cannot comprehend, God doth to thee by grace extend. By grace, remember those superabounding words. By grace, by grace. Be this in death my comfort. Despite my fear, tis well with thee, with me. I know my sin in all its greatness, but also him who sets me free. My heart is not, but uh, to naught, but joy gives place. Says I am saved by grace, by grace. Brothers and sisters, I hope you can see from this passage what is Christ supply us? Superabounding grace. May this be your comfort, your joy, your consolation. Um, in difficulty, in persecution, and in compromise. May this be your joy. May this be your theme, the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this passage.
which has such an incredible flow as it describes what we have in you, our Savior, unlike Adam as a representative, but the representation of Jesus Christ that culminates in this glorious life where we cling to the superabounding grace, which is nothing less than you, O God. Lord, we, we fancy in our sinfulness a God who, when we are struggling, when we are in trial, it's because we've done something wrong. And then when we are sinning, it's, it, you are turning your back and you're running from us or you're frowning upon us or you're pointing the bony finger of judgment towards us. But Lord, this passage is a, it's through new, new eyes, completely is, um, uh, opens our eyes to see reality. That Lord, at those exact moments, it's so that we would be people who would cling to you, who would live by your grace, who would triumph because Christ triumphed, who would live vicariously through the victories and the glories of you, our Savior. And then, O oh Lord, that we would in the end, as we lay down to, to sleep, so to speak, Lord, that grace would be our glory even then, without fear entering into your presence, knowing that as great may be our sin, your grace superabounds still. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for giving us your law, your word, that opens our eyes to the glorious reality of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.